Good morning, my friend. I hope you are doing well. I am excited to be back with you today. This is Self Brain Surgery Saturday, and you're going to hear this on the 11th of February, February 11th. Um, it was recorded on the 3rd of February as a Friday conversation, and I've, it, this is two weeks in a row that I've had a Friday conversation that I thought was appropriate for a Self Brain Surgery Saturday episode. And the guest that I have today, it, it's kind of hard to explain how I got to have him on my show. Joel Miller is the best word I can think of is a polymath. This guy is brilliant. He's widely read. He he's written and published books with major publishers across a diverse and wide spectrum of topics, which is hard to do. I mean, you, most writers kind of write within a wheelhouse of the things that they know well. And Joel as opposed to that, get, kind of gets interested in something and then researches it and writes a book about it. He's written about the founding fathers of the United States. He's written a biography of Paul Revere. He's written a couple of books about um, different government ideas, about the the problems with big government and the problems with the government declaring war on drugs. And not what you think, by the way, he's not advocating for drug use, but but he, he he's written interesting books. And he's also written a deep and insightful book about angels that I'm currently reading. So just a, a wide guy, but he has a podcast called Bad Books of the Bible. And that's where I first discovered him. I was on Twitter probably a year ago now. I don't remember exactly when I encountered him his name for the first time, but I saw some some post about this podcast called Bad Books of the Bible, and I thought, what in the world is that? Are there any bad books in the Bible? And it turns out it's about the books that we call commonly call the apocryphal books, and this is a collection of, of books that are not included in a lot of Protestant versions of the Bible. So if you have a, if you were raised like I was in the in the Church of Christ, or if you were raised in um, a lot of normal denomination, not normal. <laughs> Are there any normal denominations? <laughs> I would normally edit that out, but I'm going to leave it in. If you were raised in a, in a Protestant denomination, your Bible probably does not include these books that are commonly called apocryphal books. If you're Catholic, your Bible probably does. Um, so, so a lot of Bibles, uh, Orthodox tradition, for example, they all have the, the apocryphal books in them. My nephew Grant and I have talked about that, how he reads these books and learns from them. And I always had this notion that they were, they were just books that were out there and some people decided that they ought to be included in the Bible, but then other people decided they weren't inspired and they shouldn't be included. And I, and I growing up just knew very little about them, certainly never read them. And so this podcast topic intrigued me and I started listening and turns out these are valuable and useful books and they're really interesting. Um, some of them are kind of entertaining, but they, they're all really um, pointing towards Jesus and, and pointing towards the story of who our God is and what he does and what he's, what his character and nature is like. And, and really I think they're valuable. And so Started following Joel and his podcast, and then uh, when I went to Substack, I was looking around setting up my Substack, and and one of the recommendations popped up for something called Miller's Book Review, and it turned out to be Joel Miller, the same guy that that did the Bad Books of the Bible podcast, had a Substack where he does weekly book reviews, and I started reading and following him there, and and interacting a little bit and commenting, and he started following me, and we, we've just had some back and forth. And then as I got to know him better, I figured out he works for Michael Hyatt's organization, Full Focus, which is interesting, as you'll hear in the episode, because Lisa and I have been 
um, consuming a lot of their content and using um, the Full Focus Planner and the and the Best Year Ever program that they do for years. You've heard me recommend that before in years past if you've been following me for very long. So it turned out that Joel is the chief product officer for Full Focus, Michael Hyatt's company, um, and he before that was an acquiring editor for Thomas Nelson, the publisher. So we just we've, we've kind of been around some of the same spaces and and I've consumed some of his content and anyway I just at some point I got this nudge that I ought to reach out and try to have him on the podcast and I didn't really understand why because it's not like he has you know has a story similar to mine or or that that there's some obvious reason why you would want to hear from him but I had this this nudge that it would be an interesting and important conversation and we scheduled it for a few weeks ago and so then the day before the podcast was supposed to get recorded I got a message from Joel's assistant that he had a conflict and he wasn't going to be able to record so we put it put it on pause and I was going to get back to it and sometimes it happened with Dustin Bingy one of my favorite writers where we had a cancel it happened with um Derwin Gray as well. So we had a podcast interview scheduled and it got canceled and we just never got back to it. And we, something, our wires got crossed and it just never happened. And I kind of figured that's what was going to happen with Joel, but it turns out, um, he had a blog post earlier this past week, and you're hearing this a couple of weeks later, but in the, the last part of January, he had a blog post about copy editors, and it was a really interesting look at a job that he used to have, a copy editor job, of these people that take your book once it's been acquired by the publishing house and, they, and, and the major acquiring editor has gone through the big edits, and these copy editors come in, and that's the process I just finished with my new book, Hope is the First Dose, and copy editors are brutal Sometimes they, they say, this is too much. You need to take that out. This is not enough. You need to add something here. I don't like this word. I didn't understand this story. How does this help your book? You know, they're really brutal and surgical kind of in sort of like surgeons in the fact that they cut things out and they make slices in your manuscript and, and it can be quite a, quite a painful process and some people and their copy editors don't get along at all like like you're trying to come along and ruin my book right and we and it, but but it was interesting i read this article and i realized that this is why this conversation with joel miller got delayed it got delayed because we needed to have a conversation and it turns up right at the end of this episode about copy editing and about how important it is to have some people in your life who are willing to edit you and how how important it is for you to be willing to be edited and so we're going to let this conversation play out and then I think there's going to be a Mind Change Monday episode that I'll bring back a little bit of this content and have a longer conversation with you about the process and, and the importance of having an edited life and so it just turned out that this was a, a wide ranging conversation but it was kind of like a Seinfeld episode and that every little bit of it came together at the end and it tied up with a nice little bow and I understand now really clearly why I got this nudge in my spirit that invite Joel on the show and I think it's it's a just a lot of fun. We had a great conversation. I feel like I've known him for years. He's one of those guys that was just easy. It didn't feel like an interview at all. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation with one of the most interesting and intelligent and widely read people I've ever encountered, Joel Miller, on the show today. And he gives us a little bit at the end when I said, hey, I like to tell people that you can't change your life until you change your mind. What would you ask? What would you give us in that context? And he said something just really powerful. I'm going to give it to you right now. When I said, Joel Miller, why should? what do you have to say for people when I tell them that they can't change their life until they change your mind? Here's a little, here's a little clip from Joel. Just one thought, which is stay as open as possible. I don't mean like don't have conclusions and I don't mean have don't have opinions. 
I just mean stay open. There's going to be something you haven't considered. This is the role of the editor. The author can only consider so much. And the editor, their role is to help them consider things that they wouldn't consider on their own. And that's true for any good thing in life. There's always something you haven't considered. And so stay open. You might just find something that is a surprise that will delight and improve your life. This is a great conversation for self-brain surgery Saturday. You can't change your life until you change your mind, friend. Joel Miller is going to help you get that done. And Lisa, as always, is going to remind us that the good news is we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it, and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is, you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Well, friend, we're back, and I'm so excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine today. I've been reading him for a long time, and I think one of the most widely read people, maybe the the most widely read person I've ever met, Joel Miller is here with us today. Welcome to the show, Joel. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you're out in uh, Tennessee, right? Close to Nashville? Yep, just south in Franklin. All right, probably a little warmer than where I'm at today. So we, we are, uh, oh, going to silence my phone. So a little bit, uh, a little warmer than where I'm at today. We're just uh, 21 degrees, warmest day I've had in two weeks out here. So, man, that's, that's chilly. It's 31 here, which is chilly for Tennessee, but yeah. uh, not too bad. The sun's out, thank goodness. That's like shut the state down. And we lived in Auburn for 10 years, 12 years. So it's like uh, there's a forecast of snow and they close the schools out there. So that that happened this week. Yep. <laughs> it's good down here. It's like uh, 36 degrees and they're just, uh, you know, 36 inches of snow and they're telling their kids they ought to wear a sweater, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Hey, let's say a prayer before we get going. Mm-hmm. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to meet a new friend here, Joel, and, and to talk about you and, and your word and, and the way that you, um, put work on our heart. And uh, we're just grateful for the opportunity to talk to each other. And we pray that this conversation will be a blessing to people all over the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Joel, I got to tell you, um, you I was trying to think if there's anybody else that I know, and, and I don't think there is, who has written books about American founding fathers and angels. <laughs> I think you're the only one. Yeah. Your books cover a lot of ground. Tell us just a little bit about your about your life and your writing and, and, and those just give a little a little bit of history on who you are. Well, I grew up in a family that was very bookish. My dad's an English teacher and my mom loves uh mysteries in particular, but loves all sorts of, of literature. Yeah. And so um, you know, it, in the house there was everything from uh, my dad's also a libertarian. So there was a lot of Austrian economics and stuff like that uh, around. So there was, you know, von, uh, von Hayek and von Mises on the one hand, and then 
uh, Poirot and and Miss Marple on the other, and <laughs> a lot of books in between. And I just I picked up a lot along the way, and decided when I was in my teens that I wanted to become a writer, and did. I just began writing all the time at that point, and at the same time, as I began trying to edge my way into whatever I could professionally towards that, I discovered editing and I became a professional book editor in time and uh, still do that in various ways yeah. today. Um, but that's what gave me entree to be able to write books and, and all of that. Cool. I'm, I'm looking at your library behind you and I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm envious of your library. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably do a web shot of that as one of our, pictures on the on the post. Joel's yeah. got this beautiful library behind him, hundreds of books and I've got dozens behind me, but his his way out does mine. So very cool library. You know, I I discovered you Joel um and I didn't know that we've we've covered some of the same ground a little bit um in that I discovered you because of your podcast, which is about the the it's called the Bad Books of the Bible. It's a really cool mm-hmm. podcast about the apocryphal books, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I discovered that you work for the Michael Hyatt organization, which mm-hmm. I guess is called Full Focus now. Yeah. And my wife Lisa and I, for probably five years in a row, did the best year ever course at the start of our years. It's a way to get into January. And that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's really cool. And it's been very valuable. We've done the full focus planner for years and and uh, your tell us what your current job looks like. Well, I'm I'm chief product officer at Full Focus. So, I lead the team that that creates the planner and and creates the content that goes into best year ever. Um we also I run the team that uh does the actual live event for best year ever. So, if you've been to best cool. year ever live, that's uh that's us too. That's awesome. And um we've been consuming work that you've done for years. And I think it's just, it's just really cool to get a chance to meet you. Um, but I reached I love, out to, I love to hear, you know, people engaging with it and the benefit that they're getting from it. So that's awesome yeah. for me. I went way back. So when I first started writing, um, which I, I wrote my first book, self-published book in 2010, out of my experience of having been a combat surgeon in Iraq. Um, and that led to a whole thing of getting published and doing all that stuff. Um, and I, I did the whole platform university thing for Michael Hyatt's oh, wow. one of his early products. Um, yeah. Just to kind of get a feel for how to, you know, full time practicing neurosurgeon who, how do I get online and how to do all that stuff? And it was really helpful to me. So yeah, I've been around your work for a long time. Yeah. That's amazing. How fun. Yeah. And I didn't know that until I, uh, you know, after long after I reached out to you. So cool. Thanks for all that work. Um, anyway, I found your podcast. Um, before I even found your Substack newsletter, and I haven't been stalking you, but I found the podcast. <laughs> I think somebody on Twitter mentioned the podcast, or maybe I saw an ad for it, and and I started listening. and And your podcast is about these this collection of books that are mm-hmm. called the apocryphal books. And um, I thought, you know, I've heard of them. I'm a Protestant Christian, but yep. I never have read them in my life. And I thought, well, that might be an interesting podcast to listen to. And it turns out to be fascinating. So t- tell us, so for the listener who doesn't know what that means, give us yeah. a little highlight of what that is and why you decided to do a podcast about it. Yeah. Well, it's a complicated story. So I'll give you the, the kind of, um, the, the quickest version of it. Um, maybe not the quickest, but the almost <laughs> quickest version of it. That's okay. It, it really starts, you know, like at this point, uh, 2,300 years ago. Yeah. Um, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, are in Hebrew, the Old Testament. And yet Jews in the diaspora 
Jews who had left Palestine, who had left, uh, had left Jerusalem, migrated south into Egypt and lived in Alexandria and kind of lost contact with the Jewish language, with Hebrew. And right. as a result, there needed to be a text of, of the Hebrew scriptures that they could read in, at that point, Greek. And so they translated all those books that we're all familiar with, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, et cetera, into right. Greek. And that tra- that translation is now known to us as the Septuagint. Right. And the Septuagint collection of books, as it eventually developed, and this, this process took a couple hundred years, all the way up until about the New Testament, the last book to be written, they think, that fits in that bucket of books called the Septuagint, was the Wisdom of Solomon, which is almost contemporary with the New Testament. And those books were translated from Hebrew, except a handful that were original in Greek. And this is before people said, you know, like, this is what the, this is what this particular canonical body of scripture is. And so these books were just kind of circulated and they, they traveled in this collection called the Septuagint. And that happened to be what the early church was reading and using. And, and that would include, you know, St. Paul and um, the, the apostles and others. In fact, right. when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it is usually quoting from the Septuagint because those are New Testament books and they're just quoting other New Testament, sorry, they're quoting other Greek books. Right. And what's interesting though, is this division in those two, in those two worlds, the Hebrew world and the, in the Greek world. In the Hebrew world, some of those books didn't exist because they were never in Hebrew to begin with. Right. And so in the Christian world, the Greek world, the those books ended up, all of them, including the ones that weren't in Hebrew originally, became part of the Christian canon, the Christian list of, of, of approved books. And those include things like Tobit, like Judith, like First and Second Maccabees, and others like that, the Wisdom of Solomon or the uh, right. or Ben Serach. Those books were just read as part of the Christian Old Testament for quite a long time, all, all the way up until the Protestant Reformation. And at the time of the Protestant Reformation, in part because of uh, Renaissance um, developments in scholarly efforts around translation and all of that, Hebrew had a revival in the Christian church. And that revival of Hebrew, interest in Hebrew, meant that by the time the Protestants had come on the scene, Martin Luther and others, there was a a, a preference for the Hebrew Old Testament over the Greek Old Testament. And that meant that all those books that didn't fit in the Hebrew canon were no longer part of their Old Testament. And so if you're a Protestant, chances are very good that you grew up in a community that wasn't reading those books. And so they feel very foreign. And jokingly, Jamie and I, who have the podcast, we call them bad books of the Bible. They're books, if you grew up Protestant, you're kind of like not even supposed to read. You know, they're they're a little weird. Maybe they're Catholic books. And and so that's where that came from. And um, and that's why some Bibles, you know, like I have one sitting right behind me that in fact I have a bunch of other a bunch of other ones right over there that are full of those books. Um right. and then why other Bibles don't have them at all. 
That's, that's fascinating to to hear the history laid out like that. So I remember as a child, like if you had a friend who was a Catholic, they would have books in their Bible that you didn't have in yours, and and that led yep. to conversations with with mom and dad about, hey, what are these? And 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 the the, the standard sort of language is they're they're good things to read they've got wisdom in them but they're not necessarily inspired right and so how do we know that and so i guess yeah. that would be my question for you how do we know they're not inspired and who decided that they weren't going to get included in in the bible that we pick up and carry around with us well yeah that's that's a funny question cuz it's a it's a prickly answer i think right. the minute you really start digging into history you got to get comfortable with the fact that there's not that much very neat and tidy about the systems that we have today. And you know this, by the way, even if you believe wholeheartedly in the inspiration of scripture and all of the kind of adjacent ideas around that, just look at the bottom of the page in your Bible where you see all those footnotes that have little corrections or little adjustments right. and tell you things like in the Greek, it's this, in the Syriac, it's this, in the Peshitta, it's this. There, there's a lot of of flex and and gray areas around the margins, and these books are just kind of part of that world of these gray areas around the margins. That's right. I mean, even footnotes that say things like the earliest manuscripts do not include the following, you know, twelve verses right. in Mark or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And in fact, if you if you are really committed to the kind of modern higher critical version of that, you have to pull out beloved passages. You yeah. know, the woman caught in adultery is not found in the oldest uh, oldest copies of John. And yet we all recognize that that's a biblical story and would be offended if somebody pulled it out of our Bible. Right. And yet, there I mean, that is, in a sense, an apocryphal New Testament passage. Yeah. Wow, that's a great point. So it, it, it's interesting. How, you're sitting around and you're thinking about starting a podcast, right? And and when I started to think about podcasting, it came up out of my uh, – we, we lost a child in 2013, mm-hmm. and it came up out of that. It was I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about what I'm going through to try to help other people go through it and, and all that stuff. And when you're sitting around with your friends, I'm going to start a podcast. How do you come to – this is what I'm going to write up to do a podcast about the, the, these books of the Bible that nobody gives enough credibility to. How'd that come about? Well, that's also a funny question. You know, <laughs> when you think about podcasts, you kind of, you kind of have to have a, a stick. It's got to be a thing, but what can a couple of guys who really like these books, who really like the scripture, but are not trained theologians who are not trained biblical scholars, um, what could we really contribute, you know? And then if we can't contribute anything to the, you know, the big serious books like Romans or whatever, <laughs> what what could we do that would be still relevant to an audience that likes the scripture, that wants to hear more about the scripture, but would be willing to listen to a couple of guys who don't really have any particular expertise? I mean, we're just a couple of lay people. So, all right, that's who we are. That's what we're doing. Well, what if we just covered these books that people kind of ignore and just try to turn them into a thing, you know, and that collection, the Apocrypha, we just call them the bad books of the Bible. And we said, let's take them one at a time. We'll just go all through them. And so we started with the book of Tobit, which the reason, by the way, I was fascinated by that book is it kind of contains the whole gospel arc in there in like a, in a one narrative, in a miniature narrative. It's about this, uh, this man who needs to send his son to 
a a city, a faraway city to retrieve a treasure who redeems a bride who brings her home to his father. Like it is, it is the Christian story. And it's all in this almost like allegorical tale in the book of Tobit. And it's also a fun and riveting read. And so we thought, let's just do a show on that. And then we'll do all the other ones after that. We did first Maccabees right after that, which tells the story of after Alexander the Great had kind of like run amok across all of the Middle East and, uh, you know, bumped into the wall there in India and everything fell apart. He, the kingdom was uh, divided. The empire was divided among these other uh, emperors, including the Seleucid Empire. And then what happened to little old Israel in between all of these kind of warring factions of Alexander the Great's former empire? And that's the that's the story of First Maccabees. And it is a it is a violent, wild, intense book. I mean, it's the kind of book that if it were made into a movie, it would have been directed by Ridley Scott or Mel Gibson. It's a <laughs> it's a brutal but fascinating book. And we just thought. Let's get these books in front of people. Let's talk about them. And if we do it, we're Jamie and I are both Eastern Orthodox Christians. We th- we said what's great about this is we could do it in a way that would be appealing to Protestants, that would be appealing to Catholics, it would be appealing to anybody that just wanted right. to learn more about these books. It's really, I mean, you're fun. You guys have just a conversation. You bring things up. In fact, the 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 episodes you did about the wisdom of Solomon, I share with my wife. Um, you, there's a reference to the Blair Witch Project in there, like that. You guys <laughs> kind of tie it to cultural things and how you know yeah. what would this look like if it was written in 2022? And, and uh, let's just talk about wisdom of Solomon for a minute. Like, is this the same Solomon that that people think of when they think of the king in the Old yes. Testament? Yeah, and, but it's and, not written by Solomon, right? Um, it is kind of written in the character of Solomon. So this is the, probably, if you if you treat these books as the Old Testament, these books, w- as part of the Old Testament, the Wisdom of Solomon would be the last book written in the new in the Old Testament. And it was written maybe even contemporary uh, c- contemporary with the beginning writing of the New Testament. So right. the author might have been a contemporary with Paul. Um, in fact, when I say might have been, there seems to be, if you read Romans, um, there are passages in Romans that directly parallel passages in the wisdom of Solomon. Um, so the, there's actually an argument for being made that Paul had definitely read the wisdom of Solomon and incorporated a few of its arguments in the book of Romans. Wow. And there's a couple other places in the New Testament where that's the case also. And uh, I think it's first Corinthians. There's a reference in uh, Hebrews that's very close. So if it's not a direct borrowing, if it's not a direct borrowing, there was definitely stuff in the air, um, just culturally speaking. But those uh, those books, and particularly the Wisdom of Solomon, they were written for Jews in the diaspora. These are Jews who are trying to maintain their righteousness. They're trying to maintain their allegiance to the Torah. They're trying to maintain their, their Jewishness amid a totally Greek world, a Hellenistic right. world. And so the what all of these books are trying to do, either telling stories about these situations or encouraging people directly, which is what the wisdom of Solomon is, is trying to tell them to remain faithful to the inheritance that they have as as believers, as Jews. And that's what the mm-hmm. wisdom of Solomon does. And it's um, it's 19 chapters of an argument, really, about why 
going the path of the world is going to lead you to destruction when you should be following the path of the Lord, which will bring you to life. And that is that is the fundamental argument. And anybody who's any kind of believer could read that book and just say amen after, you know, about every other verse or two. That's right. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I learned something from y'all in that the the story towards the end of Wisdom of Solomon, I think it's 17, 18, 19, where they're talking about what happened during the plague of the darkness um, mm-hmm. to the Egyptians versus what happened during the darkness to the Israelites. It's it's terrifying and it's scary. And, and, and it goes into, um, listener, like it goes into what it would have felt like to be in this utter darkness that where the Lord was passing by and, and, and the light was not there. And it's just terrifying. You guys did a great job of drawing that out. And then the parallel, which I would have missed without the podcast, what it's like for us, even when life is dark, because we have the light, right? The light's mm-hmm. with us. It's, it's just fascinating. Well, you know, I think, you know, the, the book is making an argument that God is the light. And it's when we when we depart from the light that we experience the darkness. And if we have not departed from the light, no matter how dark the circumstances are, we are still in the light. And that's right. That, that's a that's a beautiful and hopeful message. Yeah, it was beautiful. And I and then I so I read that, and then I went and I read Ecclesiasticus, and I've got a screenshot of a, of a, a verse that I told Lisa I want to be one of my life verses now is uh, in the in the introduction to the book of Ecclesiasticus. It was written by a guy named Jesus, Jesus the son of Sirach, mm-hmm. um, and he's talking about his grandfather, and it says now his grandfather Jesus was a man of great diligence and wisdom who did not only gather the grave and short sentences of wise men that had been before him but himself also uttered some of his own full of much understanding and wisdom. So it's, it's talking about a guy who spent his life just collecting wise thoughts yeah. and being willing to share them with other people. That's a, that's a great like uh, aspiration for all of us, isn't it? It is, you know, and uh, Sirach, that book uh, it's called Ecclesiasticus and some traditions that's normally in the Catholic world, you'll find it called Ecclesiasticus if you're listening to Jewish scholars talk about it, because this is a book that, while not in the Jewish canon, is still recognized as useful uh, for Jews. And so that's called Ben Sira in right. that world. And it's sometimes uh, called just Sirach in English Bibles. But this is uh, uh, Jesus Ben Sirach, who uh, collected all of these things, and then his grandson translated all of them. So the argument is that this book was originally in Hebrew, was translated into Greek. And that's the version that we all have access to. And that's why there's that cool prologue. You don't find a lot of yeah. biblical books with a prologue, but that one has it. And um, it's it's basically like Proverbs. Um, all the wisdom literature is, and this is like that. But they're, these are books that are kind of in a conversation with the book of Proverbs. So this is one thing that's great about wisdom literature that's in the bad books of the Bible. They These are books that are having a conversation with Proverbs. So for instance, in Proverbs, you're going to get kind of an unalloyed take that um, if you're righteous, good things are going to happen to you. Right. Now you can imagine the context in which that makes sense. You're the king, you're writing a letter to your son, you're writing instruction to your son, and you're saying, you better stay on the straight and narrow, God will bless you. Then imagine years and years and years later, you're living under a Greek tyrant and your life is horrible, and everything is being stolen from you, taken from you, your life is miserable. Meanwhile, you're trying to follow the law, and you're asking, why do I bother? Because 
nothing is going well. And so these authors, and this is this would be true like for the book of Job, these authors are saying, and if your life is terrible, that's not evidence that God's not present. Right. It's actually evidence that you are on the right path and God will make all things right for you. And so these these are books that are, I don't want to call them more mature than Proverbs, but they encompass more human experience than Proverbs does. And it allows us as believers who really are struggling or, or running into the brick wall of life to, to have a, a, a text there in the Bible that's telling us it's it's fine. It's good. God is with you. It will be fine. Stay faithful. Wow. Just press on and God's never going to leave. You got the light. I love it. Yep. So, so let's, 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 um, let's make it practical here for a second. So if you read George Barna's surveys every year, you see like something, some appalling number, like 16% of Americans who identify as Christians don't believe or only 16% believe that the Bible is actually the, in, in, you know, the inerrant word of God, like, mm-hmm. like even Christians now. So, so if people aren't reading the Bible enough, as it is, why should they bother adding another stack of books that they never read? Like what, what's the take home message for, you know, Lola in Kentucky, who's going to hear this. I say, Lola, shout out to you. She listens to every episode like Lola (laughs) Lola. Eddington or yes. Hey, Lola, why should she start adding these as extra books that she reads in her life? And what was it? What difference is going to make for her, for her to add these books? Well, let me, let me give you two kinds of readers. There's the kind of reader that doesn't read the scripture all that much uh, to begin with. Um, if that's if that's who you are, I would say you probably ought to stick with the gospels. If you're gonna, right. if you're not in the scripture, and you're gonna get into it every now and then, see what Jesus is up to. Uh, yeah, um, like that, that makes the most sense to me. Um, so I wouldn't bother with these books. But let me tell you something interesting about about the history of these books. Saint Athanasius. The guy responsible, the first bishop in the Christian church to write down the list of all the books that are in our current New Testament. Um, he suggested that all these books be read by new Christians, by catechumens. Wow. And he said that because imagine you're you're a pagan, you're living, you know, in Cairo. Actually, maybe you wouldn't be living in Cairo. I can't remember if Cairo is actually a city that goes back that far. You're living in Alexandria. <laughs> You're living in um, Damascus. You're living in, you know, wherever you are, Caesarea. You're living in one of these places and you are a pagan and you come into the church. You're a Hellenist and you come into the church and you don't have a a, a worldview that's going to align with what you're going to be getting out of the scripture and what you're going to be getting from uh, your, your, your pastor who's communicating to you in in a sermon each week or multiple times a week, you're not going to have the cultural inheritance that will make any of that stuff make sense to you. In fact, you're going to come in assuming all kinds of things about the world that are false and assuming all kinds of things that are uh, contrary to the way God would want us to live sexual ethics and, uh, just the way, you know, they handle, uh, their relationships with their neighbors and on and on and on. In other words, a lot like our world today. Right. Okay. So what Athanasius was saying is you should read these books because they will be formative for you to develop that worldview. Now, you could say that would be true about the whole Old Testament, but very interestingly, he actually pinpointed these books and said, these are the ones that you that you read in order to develop the kind of mental emotional, psychological uh, kit that will enable you to have the tools to deal with 
the rest of everything. So it's wow. kind of like dipping your toe in. And so I would say another kind of reader is a new Christian. They're in they're in the Gospels. They're they're being exposed to all the things they need to be exposed to. But read Tobit. Read Tobit because Tobit is so great. It, Tobit is the kind of book that will tell you what it looks like to go on an adventure for God. Tobit's the kind of book that will tell you what you're going to experience on that adventure. It will also make you laugh. I think it's one of the few books in the entire Bible that has a comedic edge to it. Um, <laughs> so that's it's valuable in that way. And that would be true, I think, for other books like The Wisdom of Solomon. The Wisdom of Solomon is a uh, – it's almost like, you know, in – in more formal liturgical kinds of churches, you would call a book like that catechetical. It's going to teach right. you what it is you need to learn. And I would say, if you are a young Christian, reading the Wisdom of Solomon might actually be uh, the kind of book that will help make a lot of other thoughts come together and make them make sense. I Beyond love that. that, I would yeah, I would say if you're a serious Bible reader, what do you got to lose? You know, you're already in the Scripture all the time. Just get one that has these books in it and fold it right into your practice. And, you know, like once you get done with Kings, for instance, first and second Kings, just like dip into the Maccabees and see how the story plays out a couple hundred years later. Because in Maccabees, it's basically the same kind of book as first and second Kings. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of story. And now you're going to get, though, like part B. Now you're going to find out what happens right before the Romans show up and make a big mess of everything. That's what happens in First Maccabees. You said something really interesting to me, Joel. You said just then you talked about formation, like how how we form ourselves. And I think there's a, there's an issue in our culture right now where the culture saying, "Hey, you're enough. Like love yourself. You're good. You're good to go. Like don't let anybody tell you that you need to be anything or do anything different than you are." But th- but what the Lord would say, Scripture would say is we need to continually be transformed and formed mm-hmm. into something more than we are on our own, right? We, we, we need to be more like somebody else that, that showed us the right way to be. Um, my nephew, uh, Grant, um, shout out to Grant, is a young man who converted himself to the Greek Orthodox Church um, out oh, wow. of mainstream Protestantism because he wanted more. He And he mm-hmm. uses that term formation all the time, like, like everything he reads and everything he studies and everything he chases after, he's designing it to to form himself into something more like Christ. And mm-hmm. so I love this idea that you said that that if we're going to spend time reading something, it ought to be something that'll put us in a mold and press us closer to what we're supposed to look like. So thank you for creating this podcast. I, I can't recommend it highly enough, listener. Um, to, to to listen to Joel's podcast. I think it's, it's helpful and it's added something to my life, just uh, adding these books and, and I'm working through them slowly. And, and yeah. I appreciate the, the addition to my spiritual formation. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. It's great to connect with someone that's loving it. And uh, I especially appreciate sharing the word. It's really cool. Now I want to pivot for just a minute. So mm-hmm. it, it makes a little sense now to me. I'm like, how did this guy who's obviously a polymath, cause you, you, you have a podcast about scripture and, and the apocrypha. And then you, you work in publishing or an acquiring editor. And then you said your, your dad was kind of a libertarian. And that may mm-hmm. explain some of your early writing. Like some of your books, you, you wrote a book about Paul Revere. You did a, you edited a book about the founding fathers, right? And, and mm-hmm. things that they say, the portable patriot. Um, yep. 
and then you uh, wrote a book about government, how big government ought to be and all of that. So, so give yep. us, it makes sense now that I can see how these things are tied together, but just give us kind of a overview of the books. If somebody's going to go read one of your books, like what they're, what they are and what they're about and which one you would recommend somebody start with first. Well, that's tricky. Um, the, it depends on what your interests are because uh, there's a, a musician named Harry Manx that has a line called strictly whatever. And that's, I kind of feel like that applies to my publishing career so far. Um, it's kind of like a little bit of everything. Um, if you are a libertarian and you want, or, or a conservative of some kind, and you want a book that kind of looks at the role of limited government and what that, what that looks like for an individual, um, I wrote a book called size matters. That's all about how the size of government impinges on people's ability to pursue happiness uh, as, as conceived by the the founders, you know, when you think about the uh, declaration of independence and um, before that, just before that, I had written a book on that's kind of makes a conservative case for legalizing drugs, which is, you know, maybe a scandalous thing for some folks to think about, but I tried to make the argument that while the, the uh, desire among people to to prohibit illegal narcotics is worthy. I mean, nobody wants you know to imagine that the world is going to be full of people using illicit drugs in such a way that are going to be hampering society. Right. The laws themselves to deal with it are actually worse. Is the argument I'm making in the book, and the reason for that is that it just ends up distorting so many aspects of law enforcement and uh, um, other parts of government. And so it is not worth the payoff. In fact, I believe it is the only book on decriminalization of drugs that begins with a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther (laughs) said that uh, the prince should be careful. He's advising rulers. The prince should be picking up the spoon not to step on his plate. And wow. that's what the war on drugs has done. It is it is uh, something in which to do one good thing, you've done a much bigger bad thing. So if those if those two kind of topics resonate, that would be a great place. If, however, you want to get into like the American founding, I really got interested in the character of Paul Revere. And I wrote a biography about him called The Revolutionary Paul Revere that it's here. Here's why it comes down to one basic thing. When you think about all the founding figures, including the the folks on the periphery like Samuel Adams, um, but right. they're all big, wordy people that wrote a lot of stuff. And, and there are more of the upper crust in the community. And I thought, here's the great thing about Paul Revere. Paul Revere was like the blue collar founder. He's right. he's a a guy who is not plugged in at the level that these other people are, Sam Adams and Thomas Jefferson or uh, Alexander Hamilton or anybody like that. This guy is entirely middle class, but he's fascinating. He is a entrepreneur. And when you read about his business exploits, uh, it's, it's wild um, how just incredibly entrepreneurial he was. And on top of his entrepreneurial edge, he was a connector. This is the kind of guy that was when Boston had all these different political clubs, he was involved in more political clubs than any other single Bostonian, except for maybe one other guy. Joseph Warren might've been in as many as he was and they were best friends, but that would be about it. He was like a linking figure between all of these different revolutionary movements happening wow. in Boston. And so that's, that's one that I uh, have a special place for. And then of course, 
the weird outlier, of course, they're all kind of weird outliers from each other. This is the book on angels. And yeah. I had come into the Greek Orthodox church and there's just angel stuff everywhere. It's in the prayers. There's hymns and references. Angels just referenced all the time. And uh, it started when I got a, an Orthodox prayer book. And I just noticed like there's prayers that involve angels in the prayers. And I'm like, where is this coming from? I'm a, I grew up evangelical and that just wasn't ever part of the tradition. If there were angels being talked about, they were uh, more like plot points, you know, in a story, right. they weren't characters, um, but they are characters in kind of the Orthodox world. And that would be true for the Catholic world too. And I just thought I'm going to explore this. And so I did, I, um, I went through the scripture and then I started going through the, uh, the early church fathers and what they said about it. And I started looking at early Christian art and early Christian hymns and all this just early Christian stuff. And I said, there's absolutely a book here exploding my mind on what angels are, what they're there for, how Christians have thought about angels in the past. And it's so much different and so much bigger and so much grander than the kind of uh, small, you know, role that angels have in a lot of our lives or are assumed to have in a lot of our lives. And I just thought I got to share this in a book. And so I did. And luckily enough, Thomas Nelson was interested enough to publish it. That's so cool. So you've, you've, you've just got this diverse set of things that you've written about. And my books are all more like just following the story of my life as we go along. And, and yeah. I find it fascinating that you're so widely, um, interested and able to write in such a, a fascinating way. But I, I want to say that when you talk about the war on drugs, um, I, I have a guest coming on to the show next week named Jarrett Adams. And Jarrett Adams wrote a book called Redeeming Justice. Mm -hmm. And he was put in prison. He got a 22-year sentence for a nonviolent um, offense, which was his first offense, first time he'd ever been had a brush with the law. And he got a public defender who didn't care. And right. he got put in prison, ended up staying in jail for over 10 years, and he turned himself into a jailhouse lawyer and basically started writing letters and found an attorney who would take his case and got himself out of prison. And then he went to law school, and now he go, now he's an attorney who does that same job. But he basically made the point that like the, the war on drugs and, and things like that have have destroyed more lives and put more people in prison mm -hmm. and, and wrecked more families than any sort of murderers have or any of these other things, because we just were focused on the wrong stuff. And I think that was That's fascinating. So it kind of reminded I, me of I I'm not an expert on this topic any longer. I would have considered myself that when I first wrote that book, that was back in 2004. I, all I did was think about this topic and research it and write about it that I've moved on in terms of like my interests and in what I have time to do, you know, I am interested in all kinds of stuff, but I can only handle so much at once, you know, so right. I, I've had to put that one aside. But if you want to get my blood boiling, just go into the criminal justice system and look at how people are hammered by the criminal justice system. I, I find it beyond scandalous that conservative Americans can treat the criminal justice system with the level of callousness that we do. I think it is outrageous. And especially Christians, especially people who are believers who will give account someday for, you know, what you did to the least of these. That's right. We, we are, we are abusing people in the criminal justice system on a daily basis. It's horrible. That's right. I lived in, we lived in Alabama when I read, um, Brian Stevens, Stevenson 
Brian yeah. Stevens Stevenson, um, his book, uh, Just Mercy. And, yeah. and he talked about how if you're African American, you had like an 87%. I'm not exactly right on the number, but it's something over 80% more likely to get a death penalty sentence than if you weren't African American for the same charge, which is yeah. that's not justice. I mean, you're right. I mean, no. it's just, it's crazy. People ought to read those books and, and, uh, especially Christians, we need to, we need to be more involved in that space so excited about having him coming on the show next week yeah um gotta hear one thing i want to wrap up with i I promised you about 30 45 minutes and we'll write up against it so i want to honor your time today joel but um i want to talk about a post that you did last week or a couple of days ago actually about copy Mm -hmm. editors now you're an acquiring editor have been an acquiring editor used to be major yeah major publisher thomas nelson um and i've worked closely with editors and i and and i've had three books now published honor run and two with waterbrook penguin random house Mm -hmm. and so i i have an, an affinity for acquiring editors and copy editors and so tell us a little bit about what the work of a copy editor is because I want to come back around and make a point not about publishing but with that idea in mind. So what are yeah. copy editors and what are they all about? Well, in publishing, you know, there's something everyone says, like, and I don't remember the number, but it's high. Like probably three quarters of Americans say, I, I think I got a book in me. Right. And uh, and that's true. But um, it doesn't mean that the book that you have in you is necessarily worth reading without some help. That's right. And what happens in the editorial process is a publisher comes along and let's say the publisher says, yeah, I agree. You have a book in you. And not only do you have a book in you, we think that we can sell a bunch of them. We think we can sell enough copies to justify uh, an investment in you. Okay. And that investment's going to look like uh, the team around it, the marketing, the, the sales team, all the printing, all those costs. Most books actually lose money. So publishers, like if you, if you want to go into an investment business, don't go into one with a publisher, but publishers, the way they help ensure their investment is they have editors that help work with authors to refine their message, to refine their language, to refine all the different aspects of their book so that it can communicate the most clearly to the most people and most effectively. And so one kind of editor is the the top down the the first first layer in the funnel of editing and that's the substantive editor usually that is the acquiring editor and they basically they they get in contact with somebody they think man this guy's got a book they sign him the manuscript finally comes in and they start working on it and what they're doing is they're trying to ask these big questions like does this chapter really work does this chapter fit here or does it fit better over here is this passage underdeveloped? Is this passage overdeveloped? Um, it, have you spent way too long talking about your cat? You know, whatever is going <laughs> on in that in that chapter. And they're going to try to help the author trim that down, get it into shape. Once it's kind of into shape, it's going to go to the copy editor. And the copy editor, their job is to bring it in conformity to a house style, um, which is a set of conventions that makes sure that every book that comes out of that publishing house has all the same basic features in terms of the way it uses particular words or the way it uses particular types of language or the way it handles particular parts in the book. So there's nothing in it that feels random or wild or just out of, out of touch. And most houses use the Chicago manual of style. That's kind of like the industry standard. Right. And there's that book is, I have one right behind me. It's as big as a Bible. And I joke almost as authoritative. Yeah. Um, if you're in, 
if you're in publishing, like, you know, that thing from front to back and, um, and your whole job is as a copy editor is to make sure that authors are following through your efforts, following the dictates of that particular style manual with, you know, plenty of room for adjustment if need be. But that's kind of the role. The role is to help make the book as clean, as communicative as possible. And that requires editors who have a sense of what will work for other readers, what's marketable, what uh, is going too far, what's underplayed, what's overplayed, all those kinds of things that if you didn't have them, it would diminish your reading experience dramatically. I could just confirm that. That's amazing. Yeah, we had a a, a back and forth email exchange with my copy editor for my new book, Hope is the First Dose, about 10 emails because I had Mm -hmm. a phrase called self-brain surgery, which is what my newsletter is called. And and they were like arguing about whether it has a hyphen or not between self and brain. Like, And all these different editors were weighing it. It finally went all the way to the chief copy editor, Penguin Random House, Benjamin Dreyer, put the word down, like, we're going to give it an M dash. Like, and that's it. That That's what it is. And so, so the, the, but the point was, it's just, that's how Penguin Random House books are handled when you do a certain thing. Yeah. And, and this, but I, I have that, to pause you long enough to just say Benjamin Dyer, like weighed in on that. Yeah. This guy's a legend. So that's, that's amazing. I know. And I said, I, I sent him back an email because I have in the operating room, um, I have a phrase that we say a lot that why I always tease my team and they know what to say. Like if I say, why do we put four knots on a silk suture? And they all say, because we're not godless savages, because I always say that phrase. And that phrase <laughs> came from Dreyer's book, Dreyer's English, because he said, yep. only godless savages eschew the series comma. And, yeah. and so you, the Oxford commas, if, it, if it's in his, if one of their books, it's going to have a series comma in it. And, and so I picked up that phrase, Godless Savage. So I wrote back in that email stream and, and he, he responded, that made my day. So I interacted. That's amazing. <laughs> I never That's forgot amazing. where I got that. So, but I, I wanted to comment on that. You had a post about copy editors and how uh, Talib hates them and, and, and all of that. And it just, it made me think about a little larger um, and it's funny now that we've talked about formation and spiritual formation and all that. Like, like, don't you think we all need sort of a copy editor in our life? Like, like mm-hmm. isn't it a good thing to have to have people who are willing to help edit our lives? And and that, I don't know if, it's, if that's worthy of conversation, but it just feels oh. important to me. Yeah, it is. And it's true. Uh, you know, anytime you allow someone else to speak into your life, you are you're essentially allowing the same function that an editor is serving for an author. And just like. An author should not risk publication without the help of an editor. You as an individual should not risk life without the help of of a life editor, of somebody who's willing to step in and say, hey, do you, are you sure you want to say it like that? Hey, yeah. are you sure you want to play it like that? Um, in fact, I'm going to advise you not to play it like that. That's and right. if you're going to keep going, I may have to depart from you if you're going to play it like that. I mean, That's this right. would be this is wisdom. That's right. It comes full circle. Like we, we've talked about wisdom and all the books that related to wisdom. So it's like a Seinfeld episode today. Yeah. But I just, it, <laughs> it, when I read that the other day, I thought, well, we got to talk about that when we do the podcast. It's, it, I had a, a, a whole chapter in my, 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 my most recent book. I've seen the interview, um, that Susan Jaden, who was my acquiring editor at Waterbrook when, when they bought that book, she said, 
you got to cut that chapter out. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an aside. It doesn't really carry the story. It's well written, but it doesn't help you. And you got to get rid of it. And it was like a knife to the heart. I was like, I love that I chapter. Like, I, I love it. But, and she was right though. It made it, 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 it took away from the arc the story was telling. And so I guess the, the punchline of that friend, if you're listening out there is, is, um, you need to be willing to let some other people tell you when some part of your life might need to get out of there. And, and you can't, you, you can't be too offended because if they love you, like, like Joel did with his writers, um, sometimes you got to cut stuff out. That's right. In fact, sometimes you got to cut stuff out that you really like. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It was a good chapter. It just didn't belong in that book. So I'll, I'll find a yep. place for it. Hey, Joel, this has been a great conversation and I really appreciate you. Um, if you have a parting word for us, I always tell people that the kind of punchline of all my writing is you can't change your life until you change your mind. Like there's some things in your life you need to change your mind about. So do you have anything that you think people need to change their lives, their, their minds about that would help them in their lives? Just one thought, which is stay as open as possible. I don't mean like don't have conclusions and I don't mean have, don't have opinions. I just mean, stay open. There's going to be something you haven't considered. This is the role of the editor. The author can only consider so much and the editor, their role is to help them consider things that they wouldn't consider on their own. And that's true for any good thing in life. There's always something you haven't considered. And so stay open. You might just find something that is a surprise that will delight and improve your life. Wow. Well said. So your newsletter on Substack is bookish diversions, right? Um, yeah, it's uh, Miller's book review. Miller'sbookreview.substack.com. Where yeah. did I get bookish diversions? Bookish That's diversions another. is kind of a, uh, when I, when I upload a, a list of kind of like random publishing news or things oh, that's like right. that. But yep. it is yours. Like I didn't have a brain, a complete nope. stroke there. Yep. Okay. So Miller's book review uh, is my favorite newsletter on Substack. It's free. Um, and there's always, in fact, Lisa now jokingly tells me, Oh, it's it, Miller's book reviews out. We're going to spend 20 bucks today, right? You're going to go buy a book <laughs> he recommended. So what's your favorite book that you've read in the last year that somebody really ought to go get and read? Oh man. Well, I mean, in 2022, my top book for the year was Thomas Kidd's uh, new biography on Thomas Jefferson. And I'd say that's probably my top book. That was uh, last year. That was an incredible read. One of the most helpful books I've ever read on Thomas Jefferson. He used a mixed bag. And I, I, you know, as someone who I love the founding generation, I've read a lot of books about them. um, But it was great to have him step in and talk about him from the perspective of this kind of mixed bag. And, and the truth is that's like a lot of us. And so to have that kind of just acknowledged in the book was great. And side benefit, if you love books, Thomas Jefferson was a total book nut and there's a lot of great book stuff about Thomas Jefferson in that book. That's great. Hey, thanks for your time today, Joel. I really appreciate you, man. Appreciate being here and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, that was a great, that was a great conversation. It was, uh, a lot of fun to talk to you. Just everything I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing it. And uh, I'm glad it was good. That was a lot of fun for me too. Super cool. What, good. You did a great job of just pulling all those threads into one thing. <laughs> kind of just uh, worked out. I'm sorry about all the dog interruptions. I'll edit those out. Oh, it, it's no just worries. One of, those, one of those things. And uh, I'll let you get back to your Friday. Yeah. Thanks much, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk God soon. God bless, man. Keep up okay. the good work. Yep. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. 
Prescriptions.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery. Dr. Lee Warren. Substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarnmb.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them. tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.